morning, Northwest. It is fantastic to um, be with you guys, and honestly, it is an honor um, to be able to come up here and preach. Um, I am incredibly thankful for the way that you guys have been caring for us so well, um, and truthfully, for the fact that you guys would let a 24-year-old um, preach to you guys on a Sunday morning. Um, I'm incredibly humbled. I don't feel like I deserve to be here, um, and I love you guys a lot for this. Uh, but to be However honored I am, um, I am praying so much that um, we would hear from the Lord this morning. Um, Even before the service, as we were in the prayer room, um, a couple guys were gathered that we would, and we were praying that the Lord would speak, that everything that we hear this morning would be from him and that it would truly touch our hearts. Uh, That has been truly my prayer. Uh, To be completely transparent with you guys, this season of life that I've been in and that my family has been in has been really tough um, with jobs and family and raising a baby. Like we've been, it's been hard. And those things are the most joyful things of my life. But as a lot of you guys know, life is tough. Um, And so this morning I come to you guys beaten, battered down, bruised and scarred. Um, And the things that the Lord's going to say to us this morning are things that I need to hear as well. Uh, And so I am praying that he speaks not only to y'all, but also to me. Um, All of those things said... This is one of the perfect weeks for us to do this. We're in the middle of what we call Missions Month. Um, In September this month, we have started an initiative at Northwest to kind of encourage and to stir our body, our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church here family at Northwest, to live on mission where we are. Because when we look biblically, the ministry of local missions isn't necessarily a ministry, but an overflow of what a healthy church looks like. It's something that whenever we're moving healthily, we don't necessarily need to focus on and say, this is exactly what local missions is. It's just how our lives are being lived. And so during missions month, we also are hearing from many people who are doing that. Uh, Last week, we heard from Nicole, who went overseas to share the gospel. We heard from the walkers this morning who are up in North America sharing the gospel with people who need to know. And truly, whenever we were up in Provo, I had never been in a place before where I looked around and I could confidently say that nobody I was looking at was a believer. And that's heavy stuff. And the darkness that they walk in on a day-to-day thing is something that we always need to be praying for. And in the kind of heart of Missions Month, we've sent a team to North Africa that we're going to get to hear from after the service. Uh, They are there to share the gospel and to encourage our brothers and sisters that are there in a place that we would consider unreached. And so our passage today is perfect for what we're going over. Um, It is one that encourages us to live for the Lord, and it is one that kind of reveals to us the type of heart posture that we want to carry. So let's dive right in. This passage this morning is Acts 17, 1 through 9. In it, Paul and Silas are going to a city called Thessalonica. A little context on Thessalonica, it is in the region of Macedonia. If you don't know where that is, you know on the map of Europe, you have the boot, uh, Italy. And then next to it, you have all of that like islands and stuff. And it just kind of looks like someone like splattered paint on the side of the map. That would be Greece. And over there is where Macedonia is. And so they're going to Thessalonica, which is the capital of Macedonia. And Thessalonica is a very strategic location. It is a port city, which means people are coming and going in Thessalonica very often. And so I would imagine if I was Paul or Silas, we would really want the gospel to take root here. Because if there is a healthy church here, 
That means that they would be living and sharing the gospel with everybody that they see. Traders would come in, they would encounter Jesus, they would be saved, and then they would leave to go back home to wherever they're from, and the church would flourish there. And so they go to Thessalonica, which is a place where the gospel is not known, to share the gospel with people who do not know it. And we learn from this passage that it is the burden of all believers to strive for the gospel to be known in every part of the world. Like, therefore, our response to this passage, the application, and I'm revealing to it now in the very beginning, so we get to think about it the whole time. The application to this passage is for us to either go ourselves to the unreached places or to spend all of our physical energy and resources either training people to go or sending people to go. In the missions world and in the, um, I guess, evangelical world, there's two phrases for this or terms. You either have goers, which are people who go to the unreached places, and you have senders, which are people who send people to the unreached places. Pretty good names, very straightforward. Paul and Silas are goers in this sense. They are going to the unreached places of the world to share the gospel here. If someone was to ask me, like, why would we want to go to the unreached places of the world? That's because there are billions and billions of people who will live their life and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. And if they do hear the name of Jesus, they die without ever hearing the gospel or why Jesus is important. The reality of this is, is that you and I, we were born into a family that was Christian or we were born into an area that knew Christianity, where the gospel has been rooted in. We don't, unless you're from another country, which we do have some of these folks in here, and I bless and I praise God that you guys are here. Um, But if you are American and you're like me, growing up in the Bible Belt, we didn't really remember a time, for the most part, that we didn't know about what the gospel was. And because there are billions of people on this planet that don't hear the gospel, it has kind of become common language for me to say these things. And truthfully, I have grown numb to the fact that eternities are being lost because the church has not gone. See, we're going to learn from this passage that it is the role of the church to intervene. There are billions of people who never hear the gospel, and that's a tragedy. And it is up to us to go to them and to share, to go to those unreached places and to intervene and say, hey, I know you haven't heard about him yet, but you get to hear about him now. This is who Jesus is. And so God has placed this joyful burden on our hearts, on the shoulders of his bride, so that he can fill us with his spirit and send us to the ones and to joyfully declare to them that he is come and that he is king. This is why he speaks about it all throughout his ministry. It's why God being glorified in all of the nations is speaked about all the time in the Old Testament. This is also why the last words of Jesus in Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8, which are very popular passages, but also in the end of every single gospel, Jesus tells us to go to all nations. Like, check these verses out. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is one that we say so often, I feel like everybody in this room has it memorized by now. But it says this, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of your county. No, that's not what it says. Go make disciples of your country. No, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. He then continues on in in Acts, the book that we've been studying. At the very beginning of Acts, uh, Jesus is about to descend into heaven and his disciples say, hey, when are you going to, you know, restore all life and make everything better? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has set in place. But, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then that's it. That's all where I want you to be witnesses in. No, he says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this passage this morning challenges me because whenever I was growing up in the church, a lot of times I saw the burden of the nations for those people who were super Christians or for the apostles. It's like, oh, I can't do what Paul did. He was an apostle. Like, he was supposed to do that. Or I can't really do what a bunch of missionaries do because I'm not specifically called to God to go that way. That's not how I'm wired. To go to the nations or to live my life for God's glory is not for really me because I don't have that kind of faith. It's for those people with a lot more faith than me to do. I'm just meant to be here saved and then glorify God in my day-to-day actions, which is true. But from these passages just right here and from the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to see that the everyday spirit-filled believer is meant to live their life for God's glory in all nations, all the time. That is our focus. And we're motivated by that, uh, we're motivated to that by God's glory. And so the name of the sermon this morning is the power of an everyday spirit-filled believer. What this passage shows us is what happens when normal people become believers and walk by the Spirit. At the end of the day, in the most simplest of terms, when we are walking with the Lord, this passage shows us the result. So let us pray that we see God work in the way that he talks in Acts 17 in our team that's in North Africa. And we see God work in the same way that he did in Acts 17 in our lives, in our hearts as well. Because what he does through Paul and Silas and then through the church that is born there is insane. And if we can buy in and believe that what happens in the church of Thessalonica can happen to us, the enemy will not be able to stop us. Like, we will be filled with so much boldness in the Spirit that there is nothing that we can't do. And people whose eternities are destined for hell right now will be changed because we buy into the fact that when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can advance the kingdom of God. And so let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit. Lord, that it would be your words that speak, not mine. God, that the things that we see Paul do, Lord, that we would become imitators of it. And the the way that we see you live your life as you are here on earth, Lord, that you would empower us in your spirit to live that way. And God, I pray for our team in North Africa currently, that they would encourage our brothers and sisters there, and that the way that the gospel takes hold in the church at Thessalonica would take hold there. That the world would be turned upside down over there and that you would be seen as glorious and as worthy of all worship because of the way that you're moving in that country. Ask, Lord, that you would transform us by your spirit in the way that you've promised us. In Jesus' name, amen. So hopefully at this point you're able to turn to Acts 17. Let's stand in honoring of the reading of God's word as we read it together. So Acts 17 says this, and I, these, the names of these cities are so tough, and so I'm going to try to pronounce it right, but truthfully, I think I mess it up every time I try to read it. So, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, we got it, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, and, did, and did, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not a few leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, being Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the believers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And if you guys can be seated. If we continue to read, we see that because of this rabble, they kick Paul and Silas um, out of Thessalonica. But before we really dive into Acts 17, I want us to go to 1 Thessalonians. So if you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians, feel free. 1 Thessalonians 1 is where we're going to spend some time. And you're probably sitting there thinking, now, Scott, why are we going to 1 Thessalonians when you were asked to preach on Acts 17? That's a fantastic question. Um, I love 1 Thessalonians, but the reason that we're going there is not because of that. You see, to understand fully what we are meant to grab from Acts 17, we must look at the result of the ministry that Paul did in the church of Thessalonica. All we have of what Paul did in Thessalonica is in Acts 17. This is the only description of it. And to really see the gravity of what happened there and the real weight of what the Holy Spirit did, we've got to read about how Paul talks about the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians. So essentially what happens, what we just read, is Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica, they go into the synagogues, and for three weeks, three Sabbath days, they proclaim the gospel. People believe, and then there's a bunch of persecution. This poor guy named Jason gets drug out into the streets, and he gets money taken from him, and because of the like, rabble and the persecution that's happening there, Paul and Silas have to leave. Paul and Silas, again, on a mission to the unreached world, just continue on in their mission. They go to Berea afterwards and then Athens. And Paul, who loves the people whom he cares for and loves the people that he was discipling there in Thessalonica, is concerned. He's sitting there like, I wonder what has happened to my brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. As he is in Corinth now, currently, we think when he wrote First Thessalonians, he was in Corinth. He's sitting there and he said, Timothy, I want you, Timothy's essentially a guy he was discipling, by the way. He says, Timothy, I want you to go to Thessalonica to see if the church is still there. Because of the heavy persecution, it would be fair for all of us to assume that if Paul hasn't been there for a month and he was kicked out because of the persecution, either all the Christians are dead or they've all walked away from the faith. They were only believers for three weeks. I don't know if you guys have ever um, seen someone who was never a believer before and doesn't know the Bible at all become a believer. In three weeks, they're not that strong in their faith. They're pretty pumped, but they don't know anything. And so Paul's probably assuming like, hey, this church is probably gone. And if they are there, we need to know how to encourage them. So Paul sends Timothy to Thessalonica. Paul, Timothy gets there. He comes back to Paul. He says, hey, here's what's happening. And then Paul writes the letter of the first Thessalonians in response to what he sees there. And so check out how Paul describes the Thessalonican church in first Thessalonians one. We'll start in verse four. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. He's talking to the Thessalonians. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Check this out. 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't even need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from Id- uh, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What's Paul saying here? Essentially, in response to what happened in Acts 17, every day, unnamed Christians, who'd been Christians for three weeks at most, became examples to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And in case you're wondering, Achaia is kind of like Macedonia. It's a little bit south. And the capital of Achaia is Corinth, where there is a very mature church. Paul essentially says, because of the way that the Holy Spirit took root in your heart, really, Paul has no responsibility here. He hardly got to disciple them. So he's saying, how you held on to the gospel and how God moved in you made you an example to very mature believers. And you weren't only an example in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith, the gospel, has gone forth everywhere because of you. Three-week-old Christians. This passage shows us that maturity in Christ is not based on how long you've been a Christian. In this room, we have people who've been Christians for 10, 50 years. This shows that maturity in Christ is only contingent upon obedience and abiding with the Lord. Because these Christians who are newly converted, like, have y'all ever tried to disciple a Christian that's three weeks old? They don't know anything. These newly converted believers filled with the Spirit are examples to people who have been Christians for years. How did this happen? Like, I, I can only assume that when Paul received Timothy, like, back from Thessalonica, and Timothy was like, it's going crazy over there. The gospel's taking root everywhere. The Holy Spirit's saving people, like, in the thousands. Like, Paul would be like, you're kidding. What is actually going on? You know, like, how is the church actually responding to this? Like, it's almost unbelievable. But whenever we consider who God is, it is not unbelievable at all. We have the Holy Spirit, the one who raised Jesus from the dead living inside of us. This should be what we expect to happen. God moved in a miraculous and mighty way. Duh, of course he did. He's God. Like, this is how we should expect him to move always. And so, brothers and sisters... These guys hardly had any theological training. They didn't even have a shepherd. Their shepherd got kicked out and they were able to do amazing things. How do we learn from this? What can we as Northwest take away from this? The first point in today's sermon is going to be based off of 1 Thessalonians 1. And the first point of the sermon is this. An everyday believer advances the kingdom of God. An everyday believer advances the kingdom of God. We see this from... First Thessalonians, easy, no problem. Of course they do. These newly converted believers advance the kingdom in such a way that they are encouraging other Christians whom they are not even speaking to with the way that they're living their lives. And their faith is going forth everywhere because of the boldness and the abiding in the Lord that they have. An everyday normal believer, we don't know the names of any of these Christians in Thess- Thessalonica, except for Jason, of course, who, you know, he got dragged out into the street. But that's all we know about Jason. We don't know the names of these Christians. These Christians are just Christians in Thessalonica. These are normal folks. You and me. These guys aren't apostles. These guys aren't extra spiritual. We don't even know if they had anybody that was preaching. 
We just know that the Holy Spirit moved in such a way that they became an example to other Christians who had an established church. An everyday believer advances the kingdom of God. So what caused these newly but barely discipled believers to be a catalyst for the kingdom of God advancing? I'm so glad you asked. Paul answers this question in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1. Check it out. Whenever he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That is one of them. The gospel came to them not only in word, but also in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. We're going to talk about what that means in a second. The second piece is they became imitators of us being Paul and Silas and of the Lord being Jesus. So we see two things were the source of the catalyst movement in the kingdom of God. The gospel did not only take to them in word, but it also like set root in their heart in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And they imitated what Paul and Silas did and what Jesus did. So let's break that down a little bit. Again, we're talking about an everyday believer advancing the kingdom of God. For an everyday believer to be a force for the kingdom, we've got to do these things. And if I was sitting in the crowd, I would probably be asking myself, like, why would I want to do these things? Like, this sounds pretty insane. Like, why do I really need to live like this? And if that's you, I want to encourage you that whenever the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, whenever we've submitted to Jesus, his Holy Spirit changes us to want this. And truth be told, right now, like currently this week, like the enemy has been hitting me really hard. And my desire for the Lord and my desire for the things of the Lord has been dwindling. And I want to encourage you to walk with me as we seek the Lord so that he creates in us a deep desire for him and for his glory. Because if you're sitting there asking like, I don't, this doesn't really need to apply to me. Like I can advance the kingdom of God just kind of doing what I've always been doing. Then I want to encourage you to ask the Lord, what can I be doing so that you can be glorified more? So, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live this way. And it's meant for all of us. We are all, those of us who have surrendered to Jesus are all spirit-filled believers. And so this mandate of advancing the kingdom of God is meant for all of us. So, what does it mean to receive the gospel in word? And in, not only receive the gospel in word, but also in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction? First, to understand that, we must understand what it means to receive the gospel in word. To receive the gospel in word is simply to intellectually understand what the gospel means. And for those kiddos up here, intellectually means just in your brain. To understand what it means, to know the definition of the gospel. The gospel in Greek is a a Greek word that means good news. In order for there to be good news, there also needs to be something bad or bad news. And the bad news is that God created this entire universe. You're probably like, Scott, that's not bad news. That's fantastic. Well, just wait a second. So God created the entire universe. He breathed it all into existence. If you're someone who knows an atheist, or if you're an atheist yourself, or you're someone who believes in evolution, like there comes a point whenever we back up creation enough to where we get to two points. We either get to atoms colliding and there being explosions and that happening over and over and over again until we get this universe, in which case you have to ask, where did the atoms come from? In which case you have to bite the bullet and say, I don't know. Or you can say that God created everything and then someone's going to ask you, where did God come from? It's like, he's always been. You have to bite that bullet. So there's two hard bullets that you got to bite. 
we're going to bite the bullet of God created everything because atoms cannot create themselves. And so God created the universe. He breathed everything into existence. And because he is worthy of all his creation that he created, because he created it. I've never said created more times than I just did in that sentence. He created all things, which makes him worthy of attention from that creation. And he created us with the capacity to understand that he is bigger than us. And he also created us with the capacity to see his glory through creation. The more you study how the world works, the more you realize how deep and detailed it is. Like, praise God that he is not simple in that way. But here's what kind of happened. Because he loved us enough to give us the ability to understand him, he also loved us enough to give us the ability to learn. And we became arrogant. Thinking that we could live our own way and do what we think is best, we said, you know what, God, I love you, but I'm going to live the way that I want to. And whenever we live the way that we want to, we offend an eternal God. And when we offend an eternal God, that is an eternal punishment. Or that's an eternal offense, and an eternal offense deserves an eternal punishment. And a being like us, who has a beginning, we are not eternal. Our spirit will last longer than this body will, but we did not always, we were not always, and we will be always. We had a beginning is essentially what I'm trying to say. And because we had a beginning, we cannot pay for our punishment. The only being that can pay for our punishment outside of ourselves is God himself, because he is the only eternal being. And because he loves us, he himself decided to punish himself instead of us. You see, this is the good news part, church. There is no right action, no way that we can live that can work off the sin that we owe God. But God, because he loves us, decided to come on this earth as a man named Jesus, die, take his full power upon himself, and then raise from the dead, proving that he was God, proving that life is found in Jesus Christ, and proving that he will save you when you put your faith in him. You see, God loves us enough to provide us a way of escape, but he also loves us enough to not force it upon us. It is up to us to surrender. And it doesn't even end there. Just being saved by God is not the end of the story, but in fact, the beginning. Whenever you're saved by the Lord, he sends his spirit to dwell inside of you so that we can have perfect communion with God, perfect life in Jesus. He says, I have come so that you can have life and have it abundantly. That life abundant is found in the Holy Spirit and dwelling in God's presence. And in the Holy Spirit, he transforms us to work out his mission. Which if you read the Bible at all, we realize that his mission is to be worshipped among all nations. He doesn't want to leave anybody out. That is why I say that the burden of all nations knowing is on his bride. is because he's given us his spirit, he empowers us in his spirit to go to all nations so that all nations may know of his great love. That is the gospel. So for those of you who might not have surrendered to Jesus today, let me encourage you that it is the most life-giving thing that you could ever do. And that is where true life is found. It is not found in our own way. And congratulations, you now all know the gospel in word. Good job. Um, You now all have understood it. If you believe the gospel that I've just shared with you, you all now have received the gospel in word. But truthfully... I know in my own personal life, and James, the book of James, can attest to this, just believing that the gospel is true is not going to save you. This is Just knowing that the gospel has happened is not what brings you salvation. James says that if you believe in God, you do well, but even demons believe in God and they shudder. Do you think demons don't believe in the gospel? 
You're kidding. They see people slip from their grasp and enter into the kingdom of God daily because of the gospel. Demons know the gospel. But they are not going to heaven. Salvation is found not in understanding intellectually the gospel. Salvation is found in surrendering all trust, all of your faith, being given to Jesus, saying, I trust you with everything that I have. That means I trust you with my family. I trust you with my son. I trust you with my 401k or my job. I trust you with my well-being, my very life that I have. I trust you with it, and I trust you to save me from my eternal destruction that I've earned. Trusting that to Jesus is what saves you. As Romans 10 says, those who believe in their heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is saved, or that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Lord being king of all. When you trust that he's king of all, you obey him as though he is king of all. That is receiving the gospel in power and in the Holy Spirit. Understanding the gospel is just receiving it in word. And Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you do not only receive it in word, but your lives attest to the fact that you have received it in full conviction in the Holy Spirit. The specific wording is, you've received the word, where is it? It's in there. Oh, in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Verse 5. That is what it means to receive it with the Holy Spirit. Your life changes completely. If we can look at a non-believing friend that we have, and then we can look at our life, and if we don't see that many differences in it, that should raise a red flag. Maybe the non-believing friend doesn't go to church on Sunday morning or doesn't have a community group, or maybe the non-believing friend doesn't say things like, oh, I just trust in the Lord. But everything else that a non-believing friend does that you do, it might raise a red flag here. Because whenever we receive the gospel in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, it doesn't just transform the way that we see the world so that we trust Christ. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us and transforms us so that we live for Christ. In such a way that when someone hears a report about what we are doing, they say, you are living for the Lord in such a way that I don't even need to tell you what the gospel is because you're living it. Which is what Paul said to the Thessalonians here. The church that he left behind after they were three weeks old. The Holy Spirit comes with full conviction when we surrender everything to him, church. And the fruit of that is seen in our life. Life abundantly. So that everyone around us doesn't just look at us and say we're different or we're nice. But everyone around us looks at us and say that person has submitted to Jesus Christ. That's the only explanation. If we are living our life to be nice and to be noticed that we are nice, we are no different than a Mormon or a Muslim. And truthfully, I don't know if you guys have met Mormons or Muslims before, but they are way nicer than we are. (laughs) And so just being kind to someone is not going to, I mean, it can glorify the Lord, yes. But it is not it. The, The road doesn't stop there. It continues on and goes way further to where someone says, you've received this gospel with full conviction and the Holy Spirit is clearly inside of you by the way that you're living, what you prioritize in your life. And so to, for a everyday believer to receive the gospel and to advance the kingdom, we must submit to God with everything. And so I am with you here, church, my prayer is that the Lord would show us the things in our life that we need to surrender to him again. If you are someone who has been a believer for a long time, pray that he shows you what sort of things in your life must we give up. What is he calling us to do? 
And if you're someone who is not a believer in this room, I plead with you to ask God to show you why he wants to save you and how he will save you. Because in conclusion, this one point, we haven't even gotten to Acts 17 yet. The spirit-filled believer advances the kingdom of God because of the Holy Spirit. Like we can share the gospel. We can do three, two, one. We can do all of these things on our own. But without the Holy Spirit, it means nothing. God is the one that does all work. There's a bunch of scripture about that one. So in conclusion, let's submit to the Holy Spirit together, church. Let's, for, um, for the rest of our lives, let's answer the call of the Spirit upon us. If it is difficult, I pray that he would give us strength. If we are afraid, I pray that he would give us boldness. And if our ears are deaf and our eyes are turned off to him, I pray that our brothers and sisters around us would take our arms and carry us so that we can live for the Lord. Because this is where true life is found and this is how the kingdom of God is advanced. And so the other way that a spirit-filled believer advances the kingdom of God is by imitating those who are already yielded to God. You see, in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians, he said, you became imitators of us, being Paul and Silas, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So what caused them to become an example? Well, they received the Holy Spirit, or they received the gospel in the Holy Spirit. We just talked about that. And they became imitators of them and of the Lord Jesus. So as we go back to Acts 17 now, we want to look to see how did Paul live among the Thessalonians that we can imitate? How can we follow Paul's example here? Because the example that Paul sets isn't just for apostles or pastors or super spiritual community group leaders. It's for everybody. And I want to make a note here that to imitate Jesus and to talk about what it means to imitate Jesus, we would be in this sanctuary for a hundred centuries. We could talk about imitating Jesus and how we should do that for our entire life. And I encourage you to have that conversation for the rest of your life. How can I live more like Jesus always? And how can I imitate the way that he lived his life? But since Rob asked me to preach over Acts 17, we're going to look at how Paul lived his life and we're going to learn how to imitate him. Look at how Jesus lived his life. Jesus is way more important than Paul. I encourage you to follow Jesus' example. But for our intents and purposes today, we're going to look at Paul. So, Acts 17. The second point to our message this morning is a spirit-filled believer's customs are centered around God's worship. Give you guys time to write that down and think about it. A spirit-filled believer's customs, this is an everyday believer's customs, are centered around God's worship. So there's a lot here. So let's look at verses 1 through 3, and then we'll talk about it. Verses 1 through 3 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That's a lot. We're looking at how a spirit-filled believer's customs are centered around God's worship. When I say worship, I'm not simply talking about the music that we play on Sunday morning, although it's included in that. I'm talking about the way that we live our life as worship. Romans 12 says, Because of God's glory, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that by the mercies of the Lord to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, that is your spiritual worship. So when I'm talking about centered around God's worship, I'm talking about people, you and I, and the people that we're ministering to, living their life as a sacrifice to God. 
So let's walk through verse by verse and see how this kind of works out. We see in verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Remember, Paul's being led by the Spirit to go to unreached places. He is a goer. But for those of us that do not go, our whole being and our mindset should be centered around God's worship in all the nations, regardless of where we are. And so we would be here in Oklahoma City sending a team to North Africa. They would be the goers. We would be the senders. And while we are here, our purpose is to share the gospel with the people who are not believing here, train them up, and send them over there. Or if they're a sender themselves, we train them up, and then we go get somebody else, and we train them up, and then we send them. Our whole idea and our whole lifestyle should be centered around going to the unreached places of the world where there are billions of people who are going to hell. If our life is not centered around that, what are we doing? These people's eternities are on the line. Our life must be centered around this. This is why during Missions Month we are, have hyped it up so much to share the gospel. But we'll talk about that in a second. So, Paul's going to Thessalonica, an unreached place, a strategic location, so that the gospel can be rooted. Then it says in verse 1, Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. It's important to note, a synagogue is very similar to a church. It's a place that they would go and worship, just a building. And Jews at this time were not people who had put their trust in Jesus. See, Jesus was the coming Messiah, the one that came and saved. And Jews were waiting on the Messiah to come. So these Jews had not realized that the Messiah had come yet. They are non-believers. Paul went in specifically to unbelieving people into a synagogue where he knew that they would want to have spiritual conversation or they would be open to a spiritual conversation. So he went into the synagogue, knew that they wanted or were open to a spiritual conversation and shared the gospel with them. How can we imitate this today, Scott? Well, let me tell you. We can go to places where non-believers are where we know that they would be most inclined to have spiritual conversation. Now, there is not really, sadly, I wish these places existed, where there were just buildings where people would go to have spiritual conversation. That would be awesome. Um, But that's kind of what a church is, sort of. But in the non-believing world, there isn't that anymore. And so we have to kind of change our mindset and go to the places where non-believers are, where they would be most likely to have these conversations. Our Paige and I's community group went to um, Oklahoma City University last week, got to share the gospel with about seven or so people, just because as they were passing through their classes, they were open to conversation. So we talked for, with them for quite some time. And the conversation went as it went. We talked about a bunch of different things like band and Little Caesars and all that sort of stuff, but it ended up going to the gospel because that's where we intended it to go. So we go to the non-believing world. We don't bring them here, although we should bring them here. But our focus is to imitate Paul in this, so we would want to go to them to share the gospel in an area in which they are open, or at least most open to it. But then verse 2. Verse 2 is the really thick one. Check out verse 2. Paul went in to the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Remember, our point is a spirit-filled believer's custom is centered around God's worship. This is so key. Paul's custom was to go to the places where non-believers were, reason with them through the Old Testament. 
Now, I don't know what people would say about you or what your customs were, but remember Luke is writing Acts about what has already happened and just kind of as a quip, like I'm sure Paul didn't tell him to say, oh, this is my custom. Like he's just explaining what's going on and Paul did this so often that Luke said this was Paul's custom to go to the non-believing Jews to a place where they would hear and he would share the gospel with them. If someone was writing about your life, what would they say your custom is? Sadly for me, if someone was writing a story about my life, they would not describe my custom as, oh, as was Scott's custom, he lived for the glory of God to be known everywhere. That wouldn't be what someone writes. It would probably say something like, as was his custom, he woke up really late and he didn't have enough time to get ready and spend time with the Lord, so he got ready and went to work. And when he got home, he was really tired, as was his custom, he took a nap. Like... That doesn't sound like someone who has been changed by the Holy Spirit, does it? And leaning into God's grace, I trust him that he will continually change me. But my focus should be, what is my custom? And if someone was writing about my life, how would they describe my customs to people who don't know me? A spirit-filled believer is transformed by God's spirit so that their customs are for God's worship among non-believers. This should be our desire and our focus, church, is for our lives to be centered around this. The worship of God in every nation. And so my prayer is that the Lord would change my heart and transform me in the spirit so that my customs are for his worship. And that I would go as my custom to non-believers with the intent of sharing the gospel with them. And for those of y'all that are scholars, y'all have probably noticed that Paul said, or it says here that he reasoned with them with the scriptures. This is very important to mention because the Old Testament is what the Jews believed was the word of God as it is. They just were missing the Messiah piece. And so Paul went and used the Old Testament and talked about the many things in the Old Testament to share with them the gospel. He contextualized it. Instead of shoving his beliefs down their throat, he said, here's what you believe, here's how the gospel applies, so that they'd be more willing to listen. Very similar to how our kiddos go and they hear the gospel in their own language, we contextualize it for them. Brothers and sisters in Christ that we are going to worship with an eternity who are Muslims, or were Muslims, Muslim just means follower of God, they follow Jesus now, use the passages in the Quran to share the gospel with other Muslims. And for you guys, if you ever interact with a Muslim, Muhammad tells Muslims to read the Bible because there's a lot of really good things about God in the Bible. And Muslims believe that this is also the word of God. They believe it's been corrupted, but Muhammad tells them to to read it. And so to contextualize something with a Muslim, you would want to talk about the Injil, the Gospels, the teachings of Jesus, and say, have you read these before? This is what Jesus teaches, the prophet, in which you believe is the greatest prophet? Yeah, Jesus, here's what he teaches. Contextualize it. Learn passages of the Quran. Show them how in the Quran there's even evidence that we need a Savior that is beyond our own actions. The walkers do this with the LDS church all the time. The LDS church has a bunch of really different beliefs. And to contextualize it for them, you've got to put the gospel in their language to, in a way that they understand it. And you can use the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine of the Covenants and show how the gospel is needed in their life from their holy books. Contextualize it. 
Paul does this. Whenever he goes to a Greek city, they have a tomb to an unknown God or a shrine to an unknown God. And he says, hey, this unknown God that you guys worship here, that's my God. And he contextualizes it for them so that they're able to understand it more. To imitate Paul would be to go to non-believers, speak their language, contextualize the gospel for them so that they would be more willing to understand it. This is so important. This is why during Missions Month, the Northwest has been challenged to live in 321. If you haven't heard about this, welcome. It's exciting. 321 is three hours of reading the scripture a week. So getting with the Lord in his scriptures and reading it and studying in it, feasting on it, abiding with the Lord in it and dwelling with him here for three hours a week. Then with your community group, you are encouraged to go out into the world like Paul did and have two gospel conversations or share the gospel for two hours. To go out into the non-believing world with the intent of sharing the gospel and then with your community group praying for an hour. Three, two, one. This is why we're hyping on this so much is because it's not just something clever that the church has come up with like, hey, this sounds like a good thing for us to do. This is how we imitate Paul. This is how the spirit-filled life is lived. This is how the kingdom of God is going to be advanced is when we, with the intent of sharing the gospel, make it our custom to go to the non-believing world. Not motivated simply because we're going to share the gospel because we're commanded to. Paul was not just going to the non-believing world because Jesus said so. Paul was burdened. He said that because he's been saved, it's his obligation to take this greatness to these people. In love and captivated by the awe of God, he went to the non-believing world because he knew how great God was and that they needed to know it. Jesus commands it, of course. But our motivation should be because we're in love with God we go. So, to become imitators of Paul here, we must go to the non-believing world as our custom. Show them who the Lord is. Motivated by the Holy Spirit and empowered by him to go. And then the third point comes from the last five verses here. The spirit-filled believers turn the world upside down. Spirit-filled believers turn the world upside down. I've already gone over time, so we're going to kind of through this one. Um, So this comes from verses four through nine, where essentially it's the part of the passage where Paul and Silas share the gospel. Many devout Greeks believe, not a few leading women. I don't know how many women that is, but it's not a few of them. Um, And some Jews believe in the gospel. Because of this, um, the rabble kind of rises up. They take Jason out. They take some money from him. I'm sure they probably beat him a little bit. And then they let them go, and Paul and Silas had to run away. But look at what they say here about them. Check out verse 6. When they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, and they shouted this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. This shows us a couple things. One, this shows us that the Thessalonians had heard about Christians before Paul and Silas got there. Because he refers to them as these men who have turned the world upside down. If they had not heard of them already, they would have had to explain the whole situation to the city authorities, right? Hey, they were teaching this, and they came in here, and this is what they're doing, and this is this stuff. But no, they've heard about believers before. And they said, these men who have turned the world upside down, the ones we keep hearing about, they're here now. And Jason is on their team. So let's take money from him. 
what does the non-believing world say about Christians today? Oh, they're judgmental. They're homophobes. They, they hate people. Like, there's no grace in churches. They're just judgmental. They look at me as though I'm sinful. They're just as sinful as I am. What the hypocrites. God. Does that sound like people who've turned the world upside down? I don't think so. And in most conversations about the gospel with people who have especially grown up in Oklahoma, nine times out of ten, you will hear people say those things. The church is without love. So what has happened? And how can we respond to this church? See, I believe that when we are filled by the Spirit, the Lord moves in us in a loving way to where we're not judging people, but we are aware of our own sin, walking in the grace of Jesus and inviting others to walk in his loving grace as well. And because we've walked with the Holy Spirit here, people don't see us as judgmental, but they see us as different. Like they're declaring here that Caesar is not king, but Jesus is. They're not turning the world upside down because they're fighting for different policies or they're voting for the pro-life candidate, although that's a good thing to do. They're turning the world upside down because they are making disciples with people. These people are changing and they're making other disciples and the culture is changing from the underneath, not from the policies or the government, but because the people are changing. The church's number one primary way to turn the world upside down is to advance the kingdom of God, not fight a culture war. The primary focus for believers is to go and share the gospel and use the Holy Spirit, filled by the Holy Spirit, and proclaim it to those people. That is why we've sent our team to North Africa, is because whenever they go there, lives are going to be transformed, and the whole country is going to be changed, not because the king has changed or the government has changed, but because they are being changed. The world gets turned upside down by an everyday spirit-filled believer because we are living with the Lord. Walking in the Holy Spirit. Change happens in a non-believer, not because we're trying to change their actions, but because God takes hold of their heart. Action changing and um, different like behavioral attention to a non-believer is useless. Don't expect a non-believer to live like a Christian. They don't follow Jesus. Show them the gospel. Show them the Lord and they will change on the inside out because of the Holy Spirit. The Lord, I'm going to say this, two things and then we'll finish. The Lord transforms us by the Holy Spirit. And the church is transformed by God for the purpose of invading every nook and cranny of Satan's kingdom to advance the kingdom of God and see God glorified and worshiped among all people. That is joyful. And I have a story that I wish we could have him here to tell but in the perspectives class, there's a man named Dennis who spent 10 years um, in Papua New Guinea, a place that had never heard the gospel before. He was a goer. And he lived there with his family and his young child, not much older than my son, moving to this place where there's like no internet. There's like hardly anything there at all. And they build a shack and they live there among the people, learn their language, show them how to read. They like literally create their own writing language for the people. They explain the gospel to them and they become saved. And after they become saved, or many of these people became saved, Dennis and his family worked with the tribal leaders there to create a script, a way to write the language that they speak and a way to translate the scriptures. And so then they would work together Dennis and this other guy, 
and many other tribes' people would work together to translate the Bible. And they started in Genesis. And you want to talk about the Holy Spirit and God turning the world upside down for this tribe. Already, the Holy Spirit has been sweeping through the tribe, changing their actions. Not because Dennis is telling them the way they should live, but because the Holy Spirit is moving them to live a certain way. And as they were translating Genesis, you guys, life is found in Jesus. And as they were translating Genesis, the multiple times, the tribesmen reading God's word for the first time would say, way low, wow. And they would like fall back and sit down, dwelling on the scripture and the word of God. When was the last time you read Genesis and fell over? God in his word is good. And it is life-giving and transforming to read God's word and to be with him and to walk with him. And the most heartbreaking part of this entire story that he tells is he's sitting there with another one of these tribesmen and the tribesman asks him, Dennis, did your father have God's word? And he said, yes, he did. And the tribesman asked, did your father's father have God's word? He said, yes. The tribesman kind of looked a little bit like shy, Because he had something that he wanted to ask Dennis, but he would have been disrespectful, so he refused to ask the question again. No, he he refused to ask that question, and he asked the same question again. He said, Dennis, did your father's father's father have God's word? And he said, yes. And you could just see the tribesman countenance change. And he said, did your father's 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 father have God's word? And he said, yes. The tribesman just sat there and lowered his head. And he looked out, and by the shack that they were translating the scripture was a hill where they had buried their family members that have died in the past. And looking out at these generations of people who are dwelling in hell right now, he realized that selfishly people held on to God's word and did not go to him. And did not go to their family because they wanted to build their own life here in the States. And there's nothing wrong with living here. We live here to send people And to transform lives. To disciple so that they may go if we stay. But for him to sit there and read God's word for the first time. Be shocked by it. And then ask, did your great, 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 great grandfather have this? Why didn't he go here? Why did my people have to die? Why did I have to watch my family die without knowing God's word? Spirit-filled believers are the backbone and the lifeblood of the church. We are God's plan A to getting the gospel to the unreached world. And so if you are not someone who is going to go overseas, live life here, training up believers who you will send to go. Because people are being condemned to hell right now, and we aren't going to them. A spirit-filled believer advances the kingdom of God. An everyday spirit-filled believer advances the kingdom of God. You and me. We have a role to play. And it is beyond just living here in the States and saying that we're Christian and going to community group and going to church, but our lives must be centered around God being worshipped in all the nations. So church, the time is now. Let's yield to the Spirit. Let Him lead us. And then let's turn the world upside down. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us and move us to this. God, you have promised to do these things whenever you transform us by your spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you do. That the enemy would not be able to distract or stop us. That we would not fall into a lullaby and get distracted. But your glory and your eternity and the awe that you have would be on our eyelids forever. 
Lord, that we would be obsessed with your glory being known. I ask that you would glorify yourself in all nations and use my brothers and sisters here for that purpose. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.